You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, God of goodness, God of grace. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us now as we turn to your word that we would be those who don't just hear and walk away uh, unchanged, but that we'd be those who respond to the grace in your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. It's great to see you, those of you here, those of you online, um, those down in the fellowship hall. Grateful that all of you are here today. If you've been with us this fall, you'll know that we've been in a sermon series um, looking at First and Second Samuel called Longing for the True King. I hope that you're beginning to realize that these old, old stories in this old, old book um, are not just interesting stories from the past, but that what we've been saying week by week is that there are stories that as we learn about the Israelites and their struggles, we're learning about ourselves. And as we learn about God and his faithfulness to them, we're learning about God's own faithfulness to us. So today, we are looking at what is the most famous story from 1 Samuel, and probably is one of the most famous and iconic stories in the whole Bible, and that is the story of David and Goliath. Now, let me just say a couple things about this story. First of all, um, even if you have never been to church in your whole life or never opened the Bible, you probably know this story. And it's super famous and well-known, iconic Here's the thing, though. Um, sometimes when you think you know a story really well, you, you, you can miss what's really important. And so I would encourage you this morning to try to approach the story as a child, as if you're hearing it for the first time. Invite God to show you something new today. The other thing I'll say is um, it's a long story. It's the entire chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 17. And so I'm, we're only going to be reading a, a small section of the story. And so I'd invite you to, if you'd like, to open a Bible either one that you brought or, or the Pew Bible in front of you. You can look at the Bible on your phone. Just please just don't look at Facebook or something during the sermon. Just, just focus on the Bible. Um, and because I'm going to be pointing out different parts of the whole story um, during the sermon. So let's hear God's word read. Um, we've got a fantastic reader today in Ellie, and she's going to read to us from a section of this story. A reading from 1 Samuel 17, 31 to 47. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight for him. Saul replied, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight for him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, and he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed 
David in his own tunic. He put coat armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, took five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and whistling in his hands, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shard barrier in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was low more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come with at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to Philistine, You come against me with the sword and spear of the javelin, but I come against you with the name of the Lord Almighty, God with the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This way the Lord will deliver you in my hands. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This is the very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All of those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into all our hands. This is the world of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Brother. <laughs> you got to love it when a little six-year-old girl says, I will cut off your head, you uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> I want, you to, I want you to do something with me for a second. Um, think of something that you're scared of. Think about something that you're really scared about that makes you afraid. When I was a kid, I was terrified of the dentist. I know we got some dentists in the house. Uh, I don't know why, I was just so terrified. And for days before the dentist appointments, I would start feeling sick to my stomach. One of my best friends, Kevin, he, when he was a little kid, he was terrified of sharks. And it was such an enormous fear that to this day, he will not get in the ocean. And he is a 43-year-old man. There are people who are scared of elevators, people who are scared of taking tests at school, uh, people who are scared of needles and getting shots. All of us are scared of something. And when you're a kid, you think, well, when I'm a grown-up, I won't be scared anymore. But unfortunately, it's not true. Grown-ups are really scared of a lot of things, too. We're scared of our health. We're scared of disease. We're scared for our families and our futures. We're scared for our money or our relationships or our grandchildren or our children. Or we're scared of global catastrophe or global war. Adults are scared of a lot of things, too. In fact, even though the world that we live in today is actually way safer and way more secure than the world that Saul and David and Hannah and David lived in, in some ways, all the evidence shows that we are more scared and more anxious and more afraid than anybody ever has been in the history of the world. 
So the question really that's behind this text is, what do we do with our fears? What do we do to overcome the scary things that are coming against us? How do we become, move from being people of fear to people of courage? That's really the great question that's behind this text. So here's what I like to do. I want to retell this story, maybe draw out a couple of things that maybe you've not noticed before, and then we'll draw some applications at the end about that courage that we all desire. So let's get into the story, okay? Let's set the stage. There's the great foe of Israel has come out again, the Philistines, and they are challenging Israel to war, and they find themselves in a valley facing each other. So on one side of the valley are the Israelites, on the other side of the valley are the Philistines, and in between is a great expanse, a no man's land, the danger zone, the valley of death, and no one dares go down into the valley of death. Each of them are waiting for the other to make the first move. And then something happens. Verse four, the Philistine comes out. Verse four, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp, and he began to yell and taunt and call for someone from Israel could come down and face me. Now, a couple things to note about what's going on here. First of all, Goliath is invoking something that was really common in the ancient world that's called representative warfare. Uh, if you've ever seen like the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, like this is what happens in one of those scenes. It's representative warfare. The, we see a champion, you see the word there, champion, is actually the Hebrew word, the, the man in between. The man in between. So Goliath was tapped by the Philistines as the man to go out in between the two armies. Often ancient armies, instead of going to battle and having a massive death toll, they would choose a champion, a man in between, to go out and represent their sending army. And so if that person won, the whole army wins. And if that person loses, the whole army loses. And Goliath refers to this in verse 9 when he says, if we win, all of Israel will be our slaves. If I lose, then all of Philistine will be your slaves, representative warfare. That's what's going on here. The other thing to note that is really interesting about this is that ancient Hebrew literature like this, and you'll probably know if, you, if you've read your Bible very much, is extremely sparse on details. Very rarely gives many details at all, which what makes verses four through seven, if you look at your Bibles, so highly unusual that the narrator supplies so many more details than is normally given. It's something to sit up and notice. So the first thing that is paid attention to is his height. It says that Goliath is six cubits in a span, which means that he was anywhere between six feet, nine inches, and nine feet tall. So whether, whatever he was in that range, this guy is just enormous. And even more attention is given to his armor and weaponry. The narrator says he wore a bronze, just picture this, kids. He wore a bronze helmet on his head, a coat of scale armor made of bronze that weighs 125 pounds. That's more than most of you. Bronze covers over his legs and a huge bronze javelin with an iron point on the top. And it says just the point, just the, the tip of it weighs 15 pounds all by itself. Turn to your neighbor and say, now that's scary. Now that, that's scary. And this should be for, for an ancient Israelite reading this story, it should be invoking tremendous fear. The Philistines were an extremely high-tech society at the time. They had access to bronze. They were able to forge metal. Israel, nobody in Israel even had a sword except for Saul. They all had like rocks and sticks and stuff. And so this is just a complete overwhelming threat of this man 
But here's what I want you to point out that you may not have noticed before, is that the narrator is not just trying to invoke fear in the readers, he's also trying to invoke memory. He's trying to invoke the memories of God's people as they remember foes that they have faced in the past. Let me ask you this, for those of you who might know your Bibles, when else has Israel faced a giant who threatened their very existence? Does anyone remember? Class. Canaan, I heard somebody say that. Uh, and when Israel was saved by God out of Egypt, brought by him at the edge of the promised land, 12 spies sent out, what do they find? Giants in the land, Nephilim. And they were called by God to go in and conquer the giants, but instead they were conquered by their fear of the giants and sent 40 years into the wilderness. So here they find themselves facing another giant who taunts them for 40 days. The memory is triggered. Oh, here we go again, standing before a giant threatening to destroy God's people. But another memory that the narrator is trying to invoke, we see in verse 5. It says that Goliath's armor is made of scales. And then later in 34 through 37, David compares him to the wild beasts. He's tamed. So what else do you think of when you hear that an animal with scales is threatening the people of God? Class. The serpent. Yes, the serpent. We're supposed to, the, the narrator is invoking the memory of the great enemy of God's people, the evil ancient serpent who leads God's people astray from the very beginning. So you see, the threat is terrible, friends, here, not just because Goliath is a horrible, ugly, ancient, enormous foe, but because he is the representation of all that threatens God's people, even the very power of evil itself. There's a lot to be scared of. You know, sometimes people will say to you when you're scared, oh, don't be scared. Uh, don't be scared. My mom said this to me about the dentist. Don't be scared. Um, it's probably not as bad as you think it's going to be. Well, that may be true about the dentist, but I tell you what, if you've lived any life in this world, you know that sometimes that's not true. Sometimes it is as bad as you fear. And that's really the great question here is that when you do get the worst case diagnosis, when you do find yourself in an unimaginable situation, when you do end up facing down evil itself, what are you going to do? Well, look what Saul does. It says in verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They're frozen. They're immobilized. On the one hand, there's good reason to be afraid. It's Goliath. Very scary nemesis. But on the other hand, Saul was a pretty big dude too. Remember, he was head and shoulders, taller than all the others. He had a sword and armor. He was the only one who did, just like Goliath did. Uh, if anyone could match Goliath's strength, it would be Saul. And on top of that, oh, here's another factor. He's the king. He is supposed to be the champion. He is supposed to be the chosen representative of God's people, leading them courageously to face the, the new Adam facing down the serpent. This is supposed to be the number one job duty on his resume. And what does Saul do? He leads his people in fear. 
And they all follow course. And what's sad about this is that yet again, Saul is behaving like the kings of the nations. All he can see are the human odds. He's just looking at Goliath's size. He's just looking at his strength. He's just looking at his weaponry. And he's looking at himself and his own inability to face down this giant. He should have known better. He should have, we just learned last week that God does not look at outward appearance. He does not calculate odds in the same way that we do. God wins unwinnable battles time and time again. And yet Saul cannot remember this. He cannot see it. He does not see God as a factor at all. All he can see is the size of Goliath and his own trembling heart. And so they're stuck, frozen. And the story's broken over suddenly at this newcomer, David. Now remember, remember, David is still a nobody. Yeah, he's been secretly anointed as the king, but Saul is still the king proper, and David's just gone back to be the nobody shepherd out in the field with the sheep. His brothers probably don't even remember that he was anointed as the king. And so David, one day, his three big brothers are out in the field fighting with Saul, and his dad says, hey, why don't you go take some lunch to your big brothers and see how they're doing? David's like, okay. So he goes up, visits his brothers. And when he's up there giving lunch to his brothers, he sees this giant yelling and screaming and taunting. He hears what he's saying against God's people and against God himself. He sees the way his fellow Israelites are trembling in fear, and he can't believe it. He is incensed. He is furious. And David asks the one question that nobody else all those 40 days had thought to ask. Do you know what the question was? What about God? Oh, yeah, God. Forgot about him. God, what, a, what about God? I love the way Walter Brugman says this. He says, um, by his bold speech, David introduces a new factor into the action, the living God. Israel, who faces the Philistine threatened fear, acts as if God is irrelevant to the battle. And if God is irrelevant, then all is lost for the Israelites. But David will not have it so. For David, it is unthinkable to assess a battle or anything else apart from the rule of the living God. So he goes to Saul. He says, what about God, man? Send me in. Let me be the champion. Let me be the, be the representative of God's people. So I was like, what? You're just a little boy. You don't know anything. He's like, it's not me, it's God. And he starts telling him these stories about how when he's been out in the field and there's been bears and lions and beasts and coyotes and antelopes and all the other things that threaten, I don't know about antelopes, but all the, all the other things that, 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 that threaten the sheep. And he says, every time I've taken him down and it's not been me, it's been God in and through me. And he says in verse 37, this is really the key. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. See, he's recounting these stories, not to tell how great and how awesome and how powerful he is, because frankly, he's got nothing compared to Goliath. He is telling these stories to recount the fact that God has been bigger than all his foes and has taken them down time and time again. Send me in. So I was like, well, okay, I guess. I mean, nobody else is volunteering. Here, take my armor. Tries to put his armor on him, doesn't fit. David's like, nah, I got my own stuff. So he, ta he takes, the, he takes the, the sling and he goes to the, sto he goes to the stream and he picks up the five stones and then he goes out to face this dude. And here comes this kid and Goliath looks down and he sees this kid and he cannot believe it. Hast thou sent me a dog to fight with sticks and stones. He's furious. He's insulted. He's incensed. 
He can't believe it. He says, come here, little kid. I'll cut off your head and have you for breakfast on toast. <laughs> David, and Dave, David's just cool. He's just cool. He's like, come on, bro. Come on, bro. And then he says this. I love this, this, uh, this, this speech he gives. This is the message version. He says, you come at me with sword and spear. I come at you in the name of the God of Israel's army, who you mock. This very day, God is handing you over to me. I'm about to kill you. Cut off your head. Serve up your body and the body of your buddies to the crows. The whole earth will know that there's an extraordinary God of Israel and will see that God does not save by means of sword or spear. The battle belongs to God. And with that, he runs forward, takes a stone, puts it in his sling, swings it, slings it, knocks him right between the eyes. He sways, he staggers, he falls to the ground, stunned. David runs up, pulls out this very mammoth sword that Goliath just boasted, and with one swipe, cuts off his head. That's not in the children's Bibles. Cuts off his head. (laughs) And to everyone's shock, God wins the battle with the little king. What an amazing story, right? One of the best. But what I want you to see, going back to where we started, is that this is not just some story for like kids' Bibles. This is a story about how God delivers us from our fears. And so going back to that question, what do we do with our fears? How do we move from becoming people of fear to people of courage? Let me just offer a few lessons here. First of all, what we see from this story is that true courage fights with different weapons. Saul assumed that someone needed to fight Goliath on Goliath's terms. That's why he gave David his armor. He thought, well, I guess got to fight that guy with the same kind of armor that he's got. But David knows what Saul has forgotten, that God always wins his battles in an upside down way. Not with human strength, not with human power. He does not say it with sword or spear. He does not depend on the weapons of the world. And what's amazing about this story is that it is not in spite of David's smallness that he wins. It is because of his smallness that Goliath is blind to the threat that David poses because he is so focused on his weakness, his supposed silliness, that David is able to take advantage of it and win. It is not in spite of his weakness, but because of it that he triumphs. God wins through weakness. So that's the first lesson is that, is that we, when we are afraid, we are often tempted to take up the weapons of the world and fight on the world's terms. Why do Christians do this still? You know, we have an, another uh, election uh, coming up. All the yard signs are out, right? Everywhere you go. Christians have often been tempted to use secular political power as a weapon to gain advantage for themselves. You know, it is definitely true that our society is becoming more secular and it's becoming more difficult to be a Christian in our society. But often our temptation is to go after power, to take up the same weapons of the world, to seize back the power and the control that we fear that we have lost. What happens when people of faith do this? Instead of faith influencing politics, nine times out of 10, politics corrupts the faith. One thing um, that I have learned a ton from is the history of the black church in America. Because, you know, the black church has been continuously marginalized, continuously oppressed from the beginning of our society. But they never were under the illusion that they could get control because it just wasn't an option for them. So instead, the black church recognized that in their marginalized position, they needed different weapons. 
different kinds of weapons, like nonviolence and peaceful protest and boycotts and powerful acts of forgiveness and beautiful art and music and worship. These weapons, though perceived by some as weak, have been a source of tremendous spiritual power for the black church in America. So as we feel more marginalized in our society, as our country becomes more secular, we have so much to learn, so much to learn from our black brothers and sisters who have lived in marginalization and have learned how to be faithful with different weapons, all right? True courage fights with different weapons. That's not the only thing we see, though. True courage also finds a different source. When modern people think about courage, what do they do? They say, look within. Look within yourself to find power and resources to overcome whatever obstacle that you need to face. So for example, if you're an athlete dealing with a lot of fears about an opponent, your coach or your, your, your sports therapist might tell you, visualize success, right? Visualize yourself making the basket. Visualize yourself kicking the goal. Visualize yourself making the serve. Visualize yourself being the powerful person that you are. Banish your fears and look at yourself with confidence, that tends to be how we think about courage in our society. Now, sometimes David and Goliath has been told in a similar way, like you too can defeat your giants. Sometimes that's true, but more often than not, we do confront problems that we can't overcome. If you're facing a terminal cancer diagnosis or chronic disease or a relative or spouse with an unrelenting addiction or mental illness, I'm sorry, but visualizing success won't take you very far. Sometimes giants are just too big. So David shows us a different source of courage, not himself visualizing success over Goliath, but looking to God as the true actor in the field. David saw the battlefield different than anyone else. He didn't just see two guys out there on the field, himself and Goliath. He saw a third party in the field the living God, and he knew though he wasn't bigger than Goliath, there was one in the field who was way bigger than Goliath ever will be. And so he found courage, not through himself, but by looking to an outside source. That's the source of courage, friends. We need something in our lives that is bigger than our fears, that is greater than the things that threaten us, that offsets our challenges. Our fear is relativized in the greatness of God. I wanna show you this is a little clip that went viral um, on social media. And just want you to watch this little kid who's getting his um, blood drawn, I think. So if you don't like watching blood drawn, you can close your eyes. But let's just watch this little, little kid here in this scene. That's it. See? That's I didn't see. You see? <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. See? Hey, that's Did it, it hurt? Did it hurt? <laughs> Not bad. Well, I don't want you. I'm not gonna stick you over there. That's all right. That's all right. Oh my God, this so big as his thumb gets so mighty. There's nothing in my thumb. See your blood still going in there? See, look. God is so big as his thumb gets so mighty. That's right. Not in my God cannot do. My God is so big as his thumb gets so mighty. That's right. That's right. Okay, now that is so cute, but. Here, I, I actually want you to see that that's more than just cuteness. That is a serious, powerful theological act that that child is doing. Notice that the child is not saying, I can do it. I can do it. What is the child saying? My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. 
My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. The child is not looking to himself. He is looking to the one who is bigger than the fear. Courage comes not by downplaying the threat to make it smaller or looking at yourself to make yourself stronger, but to look to God who is bigger than what you face. So think about what you're facing right now. Can you see that God is bigger than your fear? Can you be like David? Can you be like this child? One last thing, true courage trusts the ultimate champion. You know, this is such a timeless story. And I think, unfortunately, the lesson that we have all heard since we were little children that we hear again and again and again is be like David. You know, put yourself, that's where we put ourselves in this story. David, face down your giants, face your fears. I just want to suggest to you that as Christians, that's not where we find ourselves in this story. That this story is one of the most powerful stories that points to the gospel, that points to our Savior Jesus than any other story in the Bible. For Christians, this story speaks of the ultimate champion, the true descendant of David, the one who is our representative, our champion, who is the man in between, who goes out into battle for us, who doesn't just fight for us, but who fights as us, the God-man representing all humanity, going down into the valley of the shadow of death to face down death, hell, and evil on our behalf. He too was weak. He too was little. He too faced insurmountable odds. He too saved, not in spite of his weakness, but because of his weakness, because of his suffering, his torture, his crucifixion and death, because and through his weakness we are saved. And he did not just save us from physical death, but from eternal death, from the very powers of hell and the serpent himself. And so now, as the writer of Hebrews says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the archegos, the champion of our faith. His victory is our victory. His triumph is our triumph. In, his, in this story, friends, we're not David going down to face the foe. We're the Israelites up on the hill, watching as our champion goes down and fights on our behalf, our representative, crushing the head of the serpent that we might be free. The message of the Bible is not that we are called to save the world. The message of the Bible is that we have one who has done that for us, who has triumphed on our behalf. And how does this fill you with courage? Because y'all listen, Jesus has faced the worst possible things that you could ever face as a human being already for you. Do you fear pain? You'll never have to endure any kind of pain that Jesus had to endure. Do you fear losing your good name? Jesus lost the ultimate name. Do you fear losing those that you love? Jesus lost everyone and everything. Do you fear facing death itself? Jesus faced death with and for us. Jesus faced the worst possible nightmares that human beings could ever face and he beat them, blasted through the other side, rose from the dead, promised a day of victory. And so this is the source of courage, friends, that no matter what happens, there is nothing to be afraid of. Jesus is our champion. Jesus has gone before us. Jesus has crushed the head of the snake. Jesus has conquered the giants. He's guaranteed the day that all will be well, all manner of things will be well. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph 
through us. The prince of darkness is grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are that little word. You are that little king who, through the weakness of your suffering and death, has felled the giant, has taken down all that threatens us, has taken down sin and death and hell, the evil one himself, and has guaranteed victory. God, we are afraid of so many things, and there are so many things that are rightful to be afraid of. And yet with you, we have one who has triumphed on our behalf. So help us to be people of courage, who has a God of courage. Help us to face down our fears, not looking within ourselves to our own strength and confidence, but looking to you, the one who is the third player in the field, the one who is mightier than any foe. Give us strength and courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.